0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Our guest today on Everyday Injustice, jean Viev Jones-Wright, was one of our featured speakers in October for our ninth annual event. She was a public defender who ran for DA in 2018, but she didn't get elected. Welcome to our show, jean Viev.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to start in kind of an unusual place. Um, Are you surprised that uh, reformers running for DA has become such a thing?
1: Oh, I'm not surprised at all. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think that this wave of reformers running for district attorney was something that had to happen and was bound to happen honestly, once we started to inform citizens that they actually vote in the district attorney, they felt empowered. And so that was one of the things that we learned during the race was that a lot of folks didn't understand that the district attorney is actually an elected official. And so once we started to empower citizens with the knowledge and the decision-making column, who would be in that seat? It was inevitable that they would start this call and this push for reformers to be in that seat, and that extraordinary people would answer the call. And so, I am not surprised at all.
0: And what went into your decision to go from a public defender to uh, the decision to run for DA?
1: There's this quote by Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that describes where I was personally on such a high level. You can only do so much as a public defender. I would tell people all the time I can acquit every single last one of my clients, and it does nothing for the systemic injustices. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, it's not one of hopelessness or helplessness or powerlessness, but it's just understanding that there's somewhere else you can be to make a bigger impact. And for me, it was saying that if I was a district attorney, I would actually be able to be the person at the table making decisions that impact people that would cut across cases. It would be something that's more global. I would be able to set policy And so for me, that's where I needed to be in order to address the problems that I was seeing in the criminal justice system.
0: And so what problems were you seeing? What's San Diego like, by the way?
1: Oh, man. (laughs) Um, I could talk about this for a a week without stopping or having a bathroom break with you. You know, in, in San Diego which is my hometown. I love it. Born and raised in San Diego. Um, We are a very interesting city and county. For as much as we talk about how much we are metropolitan and one of the largest cities in America, we are not very progressive. And San Diego for a long time had a reputation for being conservative, and that's because all of our elected officials were all Republican and conservative at the county level, every single last one of them. But San Diego as a county is actually, and especially the city, is more blue than red. So we just got our first Democrat on the board, on the County Board of Supervisors in a while. And... When we look at the district attorney, it's always been Republicans. We've had, you know, one Democrat sprinkled in decades ago. But when you have folks in power who don't share the same values and integrity as the people they're called to represent, they get to make the decisions and your city then becomes looked at as a place where, and it actually becomes a place where, real criminal justice reform cannot take place because of the power holders at the table and so that is the story of San Diego you have people who have been affected by the criminal justice system who have been pushing for things and then the people who are in power have been pushing against those things so when we look at prop 47 prop 57 um all of the criminal justice reform regarding sex trafficking and not prosecuting young people who are being sex trafficked and women who have been sex trafficked It was a district attorney's office who was going to Sacramento and actually lobbying to not implement things like Prop 47, Prop 57. And they still wanted to prosecute and criminalize sex trafficking victims and survivors. Right. And so when you see this playing out, you get this picture of San Diego as, wow, they don't fit in California. When really it's been a stronghold that the Republican and conservative elected officials have had over the people who are actually impacted and affected who are saying, no, we've got to do something about this. And so that's just one piece of San Diego. The other part of it is that law enforcement has been shown very clearly through several and recent studies that they engage in racial profiling that black and brown people are disproportionately stopped in the city of San Diego. And then we have city council who says, you know what, I understand there's another independent study, and we're going to adopt their findings, but not their recommendations. And so that's San Diego. You have this city that is clamoring for justice and for reform, and you have elected officials who say, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Um, But we're actually not going to do anything about that. And that's just two examples. But I can go on and on about San Diego and the problems that we have.
0: Well, actually, I'd like you to take us into a San Diego courtroom and and kind of describe what it's like and what it's like to be a public defender dealing with people that are indigent, that uh, have no resources, they have no means to fight back.
1: So, as a public defender, which I served as a deputy public defender in San Diego County for 13 years, I recently left about five months ago to become the legal director for PANA. But I've served as a public defender not just in San Diego, but in Riverside County, which is also another Southern California county. And I can tell you that when you are a public defender, you completely understand why your clients would have a mistrust of you and the system itself. Now, coming in as a public defender, you are given a case that has already been worked up by the prosecutor. And this is what I think is very crucial for people to actually understand. By the time we get a case in our hands, you've already had law enforcement make a decision as to who they believe committed a crime They've worked up the case. They've had an investigation. They've most likely, they did their investigation and then referred it over to the district attorney's office. Some of the cases actually originate from the district attorney's office and the investigation that they've done. But most of the cases start with your sheriff's department or your local police agency who've done their own investigation and then have referred a case to the district attorney's office, who then takes on the case, issues the case signs their name on it, and then prosecutes it in a court of law. By the time we get the case, our person is their prime suspect. Common sense goes out the window. What I've seen with prosecutors most times is that they don't let the evidence lead them to things. They take the targeted person or the suspect and allow for that to lead their investigation. And I've seen this happen on multiple levels in many, many cases. So when I get a case, I'm looking at my client and I'm thinking, how can I be the best advocate for you? It doesn't matter what they tell me, their defenses. It doesn't matter what their side of the story is, whether it is implausible or not. My job is to investigate on behalf of my client. And so that's where I actually start is, really garnering the trust of my clients so that they can actually see me as not being a part of the system so that they trust me enough to actually tell me their side of the story. And I found that a lot of the clients that I would sit with is that you have to develop this trust over time. And many times as public defenders, you are thrown into a case. You're assigned a case after the person has been arraigned. They expect for you to come in, at the readiness hearing, which would be that first court hearing after the arraignment most times if there's not a bail hearing, and the prosecutor wants you to give an offer to the client, a client that most times you haven't developed that rapport with. So for me, it was important for me to see my client before the readiness hearing, even if it was going to see a client on a holiday or a weekend, but just getting that trust established was important right? But even if you go to your client at the jail before the first hearing, the very first hearing, you're you're asked to relay an offer from a prosecutor. You're asking them to contemplate and consider taking a plea bargain. And you're saying in most instances, the DA says, if you don't do this today, then it's going to get worse at the next hearing. Or if you don't take this today, then this is what is to be expected after the preliminary hearing. And so this is a crucial part of the criminal justice proceeding that everyone falls into most times in our criminal courts that we really should focus on. Because a lot of the time, clients see public defenders and private attorneys who are coming to them at the first readiness hearing as, another part of that machine of trying to get them to plead guilty, well, one, they may not understand. Two, they don't believe they did anything wrong. Three, they probably didn't really do anything wrong. Four, the case is overcharged. And what the prosecutor is actually offering them is not really what justice looks like. So I know I've said a mouthful and that's just the beginning of the proceeding, but that's what it starts to look like. Every day in a case when you are a public defender, probably not just in San Diego, but everywhere.
0: Most likely. So, in San Diego, did you feel like you had enough resources to fight these battles?
1: I've always believed that San Diego is one of the more blessed counties and jurisdictions anywhere in the nation. But at the same time, San Diego, especially the public defender's office, have been have been fighting for parity with the district attorney's office. No matter where you go, you're going to see more district attorneys than public defenders. You're going to see that the district attorney's office has more resources in the form of investigators, who, by the way, the investigators for district attorney's offices, and I'll speak very clearly and specifically about San Diego, their peace officers, their district attorney investigators are all recruited from police agencies. So a lot of former police officers from the National City Police Department, Chula Vista Police Department, San Diego Police Department, these are people who are still considered peace officers who are the investigators for the district attorney's office who still have badges. So when we're talking about resources, when you're talking about the things that their investigators are able to do versus what a public defender's office investigators can do, they're worlds apart. They have badges. They can put GPS on suspect cars. They can go in and ask for warrants, things of this nature. Not to mention the power of what the badge is, the relationship that they have. When you talk about paralegals and resources, when you talk about how public defenders have to wrangle their witnesses into court where the district attorneys who are on a case don't have to worry about some of the same things that public defenders do. They can make a phone call and say, get this done while we are in trial and we have to do seven times more than the district attorney. All of that plays a role in how you can do your job against a district attorney who has the power of an office that looks like that at your disposal. And so when you're talking about resources, people don't really see that piece of it, not to mention their budget is greater, not to mention they get grants. And so it is hard to say that public defenders have an an even playing field with district attorneys, no matter how much we fight for parity, because it's not it's not the reality. The reality is that there is no parity, really, between the two offices.
0: And your budget doesn't reflect the fact that you have to have a defined budget for an investigator, whereas the DA, worst case scenario, oh, we can send out the police department or the sheriff's department to help us investigate.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So what was your toughest case?
1: Wow. I've had a lot of tough cases. I think that one case that sticks with me was a man who was pulled into a murder case and he had done everything right. He wasn't the young man who pulled the trigger. He actually didn't have knowledge that the murder was going to happen beforehand. He didn't have knowledge of the murder until he watched it on the news, but he got caught up with his so-called brother who he had grown up with in the neighborhood and he was asked to drive this brother and another childhood friend and give them a ride to a park. He watched on the news the next day that someone was killed in that location, and he went to the police department. He told them everything he knew, essentially turned himself in, and to this day, this young man is serving time, and the two young men who pulled the trigger who have been arrested multiple times after this murder and seems to just get away with things scot-free are just outliving their lives. I could not understand. I do not understand why the district attorney made the choices that they did. I, I just, this is a case that haunts me. And for the life of me, I don't understand the decision-making that happened and why this young man has lost his life essentially. and this is just a complete miscarriage of justice. So that case is a hard one for me. I have many others, but this one stays with me.
0: So what do you see overall as the biggest concerns within the criminal justice system?
1: My take on this is that everything comes down to a lack of care, compassion, and concern. I think that if we had more humanity and more of the care, compassion, and concern that I say all of our systems lack, that we would be better off. When we start to see humanity stripped from folks just because they are charged with a crime and even convicted of a crime, I think that it is problematic on so many levels, which is why we're seeing prison riots in Mississippi, and inmates being killed with the help of prison guards. It's because we've lost this sense that people are still human, even if they've done something wrong. This is why we don't care that private corporations make money off the backs of those who are incarcerated and the family members who care about them. And so everything boils down to those things. So when we start to not care about anyone that is justice-involved, that means we don't care about our kids that are just as involved We start to make them be animals. We start to portray them as people who can't be helped. And that is a failure of the criminal justice system. But, and you've heard me say this before. That is a function of our so-called criminal justice system. It is operating the way that it was designed to. It was operated to incarcerate and enslave black people, brown people, and poor people. And so when I hear people say, the system is broken, the system isn't working. No, the system is not broken. The system is working, and it's working according to its function and what it was designed to do. Which is why we have to rethink and reimagine the criminal justice system, who's at the table, and what we really believe this should look like.
0: And, you know, this gets into probably a, a much bigger issue, but, you know, I keep wondering when I hear these conversations why is it that American jurisprudence or the criminal justice system is so different from the rest of the world?
1: America and capitalism goes hand in hand. And so we shouldn't be shocked that we are treating children, innocent children and asylum seekers, people who are coming over here legally under the operation of law as it has always been being treated as less than as humans as as less than human as less than just as less than right and in particular being treated worse than even criminals and the reason why i say being treated even worse than criminals is because there are certain rights being afforded to folks who are accused of crimes and being housed in our jails and folks who are convicted of crimes being housed in our jails and our prisons that are not afforded to asylum seekers. And when you look at the reality that we've constructed, that folks who are coming over seeking a better life to leave from persecution and oppression and war, that these folks are being fed rotten food, they're being sexually assaulted, their kids are being taken away from them, they're being allowed to die from simple things like the flu. And all of that has been privatized. All of that has a price tag on it. And so we moved away from just having for-profit, private prisons to make money off of incarcerated people to now having these same entities make money off of folks who are just coming here for a better life. This is America. And every time I hear someone say, this is not America, I say, oh, but it is. Because this is what America has been built on. America has always tried to find a way to put a price tag on the misery of other people. It started with slavery when you took people from their homes, stripped them of their language, their culture, made them work to build this country for free in order to line your pockets. You refused to actually adhere to humanity standard and standards and even your own words in the Declaration of Independence because it lined your pockets, right? You were okay with slavery because you could profit off of it. All the way to what we did with Chinese Americans, building the railroad. All the way to separating children, not just from African people during slavery so that you could put the highest price tag on them as good workers and great slaves, but to separate children that were on native lands from their people. So it's not a surprise for me that we're still doing this in 2020. This is America. And until we look in the mirror and we say, this is exactly what America is, that America will continue to be the capitalist she has always been, which means that the opportunity that she explores knows no boundaries when it comes to how can we make more money. So that's my answer to that question. This is why America is so different from other places, because America still hasn't changed from what America has always been.
0: And, uh, you know, you brought up uh, slavery, and I, I think a lot of people don't really understand that our criminal justice system in many, many different ways is really an outgrowth of the slavery system and then the extension of the slavery system into things like Jim Crow.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're hearing all of these different terms being the new slavery. No, 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 no. There is no new slavery. Slavery is still the old slavery. It didn't change. When you have a constitutional amendment say, slavery is abolished except for when you are in prison. I mean, this is essentially what the 13th Amendment says. And when you look at the disparity between who fills our jail, who's on death row, whose children are being adultified, and whose children are being pushed through the school-to-prison pipeline, the preschool-to-prison pipeline, excuse me, you see the extension of slavery. Slavery didn't have to modify itself. Slavery is what slavery has always been. And it is a system in which black people under the law, state sanctions, are still performing work for free, doing slave labor, because that's what prison labor is, and under a system that says you're less than, that you're inferior. So there's not a new slavery. This is slavery.
0: So then, squaring the circle here, um, coming back to this issue, how does changing who the DA is... Change some of this?
1: So, when you had first asked that first question, that opening question, what made me want to be the district attorney? I had actually wanted to be the district attorney, or sorry, a district attorney when I was younger. I thought that I could make change. And then, as I started to educate myself in college, And further in law school, I saw the reality that being a rank-and-file district attorney and deputy DA would not allow for me to make decisions, that I would have to follow the orders of the district attorney. Even in law school, I interviewed with various district attorney offices and state attorney's offices throughout the nation. And it was made very clear to me that, in my responses to their questions, that I did not get hired for the job, that I wasn't even a contender, because even back then, they weren't ready for the perspective that I was bringing it was that humanity lens that if someone has a problem with drug addiction, that that is not to be criminalized, and so When you are the district attorney, you have the power to set those policies. You have the power to say, I will not further criminalize crimes that are on the books that do nothing to actually help solve human problems. You have the opportunity to make human and humanity-centered policy as district attorney. In San Diego, I've watched homelessness decriminalized. As a, as a public defender fighting those cases, asking for the city to just allow for people who were experiencing homelessness to sleep so that they didn't have to sleep in our jail because they were arrested for sleeping on the streets. I knew then that the district attorney could change all of that. That the district attorney could say, I won't enforce that. I won't enforce that law on the books. I won't enforce these quality of life offenses. I won't go to Sacramento and I won't lobby for sexual, sex trafficking survivors to actually have to keep that offense and that conviction on their records. so i saw from just my experience as a public defender and just as a person a person who grew up in a neighborhood that was impacted and it's not a past tense thing i still live in a neighborhood that is still heavily impacted by law enforcement, patrolling, and over-targeting, and policing, and harassment, and discriminatory policies. And just me being a person, and watching all of these things, and experiencing these things, and as a person who's had first-hand experience of this, even while being an attorney, being subject to racial profiling, driving down the street in San Diego, myself, just a few years ago, I recognize that the district attorney can hold officers accountable when they lie, when they falsify reports, when laws shouldn't be on the books, that the district attorney can actually go and lobby and make change instead of hiding behind this thing that they continue to repeat. I don't make laws, I just enforce them, which we know is not the truth. District attorneys are one of the biggest lawmakers. In San Diego, taxpayers actually pay for a lobbyist to actually go to Sacramento and lobby against what the people actually want. And so just understanding the power of the district attorney shows us that this power is a power that affects everyone, whether you think you are justice involved or not. Your neighbor is, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your teacher, your friend. But I would also say that you are affected by the justice system. And I think that this is regardless of age, your income bracket, or educational background. You know someone who's justice-involved or justice-affected. And so for me, as a person who's humanity-centered, I recognize that that means that we are all justice-involved. And so we all have a stake in this. And so the district attorney's power is something that is tremendous and awesome, and with the right person, you can start to scale back the systemic problems because you can actually put in systemic solutions.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't really understand that the DA, rather than the judge, um, is the most powerful actor in the courtroom.
1: Absolutely, and. It is interesting. I will say interesting, (laughs) but there's definitely other words that I can say (laughs) that a lot of these prosecutors who are going into court and arguing for life without the possibility of parole for people who actually need help and treatment and resources and support. They've never seen what that actually looks like in reality. They've never been to a prison. They've never watched what that actually means. That's a problem for me. They get to go into court. They have no real sense of what life without the possibility of parole is. They have no idea what death row looks like. They have no idea about prison conditions, but yet they go into court every single day and they focus on numbers and not people. And they have so much sway in the courtroom, And a lot of it is because most judges, and thank goodness Governor Newsom is changing this, Governor Brown really started to help change this, but a lot of these judges are former prosecutors. And so, and I'll say this, we're having a judicial election, and I'm starting to see these signs go up, and it makes me cringe. That I see these signs of these prosecutors who are running for judge right now, and on the top of their sign it says law enforcement's choice. That's a problem for me. It's a problem when these district attorneys run and say they're law enforcement's choice and they are running with the endorsement of local police agencies and the sheriff's department. I talked about that a lot during my race. That is appalling and it's despicable because it is the district attorney's office and the prosecutors who should have to hold the police accountable. So when you have their endorsement and you're in bed with them, this is why we're seeing a lack of accountability right now with Jackie Lacey and what is happening in LAPD, what's happening in San Diego. And so this stuff follows them into the courtroom. All of this stuff plays a role in the things that they advocate for and how much sway they have in the courtroom with the courts.
0: It does seem like it's shifting a little though. It it seems like more and more people that are willing to take on law enforcement are getting a chance.
1: I would agree to a certain extent. I think getting a chance is just that. I think that we're seeing more people rise up. I think that we're seeing more people unafraid to take on the machine, but we have to recognize that it is a machine. And I don't want it to stop at getting a chance, right? This is democracy. And one of the things that I talked about a lot in my race was how the district attorney that I ran against, who was a manufactured incumbent, took it personally that someone would run against her, right? This is a function of democracy. The fact is, that this is a democratic process. No one just gets put into a seat, or at least no one should just get put into a seat. So getting a chance is well all, but that's a function of democracy. Anyone should be able to run, get their chance, and appear on the ballot if they get their requisite number of signatures. What I want to see is the machine be stopped. And I want to see politics get out of the way of the people having their voices heard and people put in that actually care about the people and actual criminal justice because what we're seeing is criminal injustice and i want to see more judges who are really and truly impartial that they can leave behind their career prosecution days uh the fact that they were cronies with certain people And the fact that as a prosecutor, they work hand in hand with law enforcement every single day. As a judge, that needs to not be a part of what happens when they sit on the bench, because these are the judges who sign off on search warrants, And I need judges who are going to look at a search warrant and an arrest warrant and say, you know what, actually, this is not enough probable cause. And I don't see enough of that happening in our in our courts, And so. I have a lot of cases that stand out to me where I'm looking at the warrant and I'm thinking, hey, judge, how did you ever sign off on this? And the way that our system is set up is that if I want to quash that warrant, if I want to have something happen to undo that warrant or to have a remedy, I have to go back in front of that judge who signed off on it. That makes it highly unlikely that the judge is going to overturn themselves and say, you know what, you're right. There really was a probable cause there. And so our system is riddled with rules like that that probably should be changed. But until they're changed, I need judges on the bench who are actually going to be impartial and who are not going to side with law enforcement and sign off on things like search and arrest warrants simply because an officer comes in and says, I want this.
0: Final question. What advice would you give to somebody considering taking on one of these law and order DAs?
1: you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the adulterated truth. We have to expose the injustices for what they are and not sugarcoat things. I think anyone who wants to take on a law and order district attorney needs to confront that term head on. I think it serves as an injustice to say that these particular candidates who are part of the establishment or these lifelong, career-long prosecutors are the only law and order candidates. I love the law. That's why I'm an attorney. And I want to use the law as a tool to better our society as a whole and to uplift and give voice to vulnerable groups. I also love order, right? And so to give them that term as if they own it, it does a disservice to all of us who are huge fans of law and order but who see that we need accountability and transparency and more compassion and humanity in our criminal justice system. We love law and order right, and so we're not we're not giving up that part of it. I can say that I respect and support law enforcement and still demand accountability and and so that's one of the fights that I'm fighting here in San Diego. And so my advice would be for any candidate to not relinquish that term and to give it over to the other side. You embrace it and you also stand showing your conviction that even while supporting and respecting law enforcement, we have to hold them accountable and that nobody is above the law. And that police officers who engage in falsifying reports and who engage in practices that serve to pull innocent people in the net and to put them in the cow gang database and to push our kids further into this pipeline and further the disparities between children of color and white counterparts and all of this stuff that's happening. We have to be able to speak about it in truth. We can't sugarcoat it and we have to recognize and say that these are systemic problems these aren't things that are isolated it's not something that's happening in one county and not the other these are things that are system-based and so we need systemic and system-based solutions and to just say it and to not be soft with it to say it and get it out there and just be true to yourself
0: is there another run in the cards
1: That is the $3,000 million question. (laughs) I have to see where God leads me. Um, I'm going to continue to do the work as I am and make sure that we hold government officials and the government accountable at all levels and continue to do my work in criminal justice so that we can actually get some justice in our criminal justice system. But uh, you will be one of the first to know if there is a run in the future. You got that.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being on our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Geneviève Jones-Wright, a candidate last time for DA and maybe a candidate in the future. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again for another episode.